66-65. Seton Hall can go in front here. Powell, quick release. And Hopes. You knew it was coming. You knew it was coming for him. You've got to be alert if you're Michigan State. Just needs a crease. Let's it go. And it's again. Woo! What trick makes the world takes. Rocket walks the other way to Winston for three. Winston. Does he have a goodness? Winston on the hand. Here's Powell. Gets it up the floor. Let's it go. And no good. Michigan State with a big road win as Tom Izzo and the Spartans defeat the Pirates 76. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome into the latest edition of Pirate Rewind. My name is Michael Daly, and on this edition of Pirate Rewind, we will be going back in time less than two years to talk about Seton Hall's basketball's legendary game against the Michigan State Spartans on November 14th, 2019. But thankfully, I am not the only one here to discuss this game. We have an excellent panel of two guys who were a part of the broadcast. First up, we have the man who is still part of WSU Sports, Mr. Wilner Lewis, who was the sports director last year for the 2020-2021 season. And during that year, the 2019-2020 season, he was the station manager. Wilner, what's going on, my man? Hey, that introduction, I, that felt great, man. But I'm, I'm fantastic. I'm happy to be you know, on this Pirate Rewind to talk about this game. And it's just crazy the, the amount of Pirate Rewinds that I've been on because these past couple of years, Seton Hall has a, had a lot of big games. And this one was definitely one of the bigger games that Seton Hall has had in recent memory. There aren't too many games in November, aside from the Thanksgiving games that I can recall that are that memorable. This was definitely one of them. And besides Wilner, last but not least, we got Chris Russo, who I think there's a, a big reason why he's on this, and, and I'll let him talk about that towards the end of the show when we give him time. But Chris, great to have you on as well with Wilner. Thank you. It's just nice to see people. That's uh, it's seriously just good to hear from you guys. And I'm really glad that you guys started doing this. It's uh, really something to talk to. I don't know how many people you talk to exactly, but uh, I'm really just appreciative to, uh, to be a part of this and uh, just really appreciative. Glad to have you on board. Both of you guys were obviously part of the broadcast. And just to fill anyone in who might not know, the way WSU sports works, particularly with basketball, it's a rotating schedule. So when you watch either the Knicks or Nets, you might get accustomed to just one broadcast or one in-studio host. That's not the way it works at WSU sports. It's a rotating crew. Everyone gets to try new things, whether it's on air, behind air, whatever it is, as a broadcaster and as a part of the sports staff, you get to work out different things. For this game, though... Chris, we'll begin with you here. What was your role for this particular game, and what was it like covering this game? Well, I was the play-by-play -play broadcaster for this game. I was alongside Dalton Allison, who was the sports director at the time, and uh, it was, God, it was intense. That was, 
Um, I, I would say at that point, uh, maybe at least to that point, the, the biggest game I'd ever done. And uh, what an intense, intense atmosphere. I was so grateful to have gotten that game and to be able to call that game, to be put on the schedule for that. And, uh, you know, I know that I was, uh, that uh, uh, Dalton and I, especially then, uh, were very good friends, but I had felt that I had had earned that game and earned the right to call that game. But uh, the fact that he, even, look, he could have, uh, the fact that he gave himself uh, the colors job and gave me play-by-play, I was so flattered. That game, there was so there were so many storylines going into that game. One, the, the Miles, we're going to talk about it in a second, the, the Miles Powell injury. And then some people even forget, really, um, Cassius Winston, the week before, had lost his brother. And uh, he, had ju- he had just come back, I think, to play Binghamton on, I want to say, Saturday or Sunday at home before that game. And then the, both these teams were ranked so high. It, it, it was, uh, I, I think, I can't remember if the Rock was sold out, but they definitely opened up the, the upper deck. I know that for sure. And they usually rope it off. Uh, that game was even going into it incredibly intense. And that was regardless of whether Powell was going to play. And Chris, I was there with you as a beat writer and the energy pregame was something that I've never felt before because I've been there when Seton Hall's played big games, whether it's against Villanova, but it was just different because now you're bringing someone else in to your home arena, someone who's not in your conference but they're the third team in the country, and that's big. Wilner, I'll ask you now, what was your role, and what was it like for you being a part of the broadcast? So my role for this broadcaster was uh, being the in-studio host of this game, you know, being Hall Line 1, answering the calls. Um, I was alongside Jose Feliciano and, you know, similarly expressing the same sentiments that, you know, Chris had just said, you know, being able to earn that position – and being able to get awarded that position by Don Allison at the time, I, I to be in studio for one of the biggest games of the year. And, you know, you're going to have a lot of hall line callers, no matter what the result was going to be for this game, because all eyes were on it. I mean, coming into the season, Michigan State, you know, was a highly ranked team. I believe they, they were in preseason number one, if I'm not mistaken, or, or something along those lines. You know, and going into this game being ranked third and Seton Hall being ranked 12th, you know, the the hype around Seton Hall this season was very, you know, intense. And to be in studio, to be that voice that directly talks to the listeners, you know, at the end of the game was an interesting one to say the least. And it definitely made it more interesting the way that this game unfolded. This game, guys, it was one of those games where when the initial schedules released in May in terms of big names, not the full schedule, but just little tidbits, you get really excited to know that Seton Hall will be hosting Michigan in November or at the time, whenever it was, I don't know if it was disclosed that it would be November, but that's a game you get excited for because yes, there's always a chance you could play a team like Villanova or Creighton and potentially they could be a top three team in the country. That's known. But to play, like I said a few minutes ago, to play a Big Ten powerhouse like Michigan State, that's a massive game. But I want to continue by talking about the lead-up to that game because I feel like it's important. Because no offense to 
their first two games, which were Wagner and Stony Brook. And if you want to include the, the couple of exhibitions, you can. But when the schedule was released, I think everyone viewed those two games as tune-up games. It, it's kind of like what Tyson Fury in boxing. I'll, I'll go to a boxing analogy here. It's what Tyson Fury did in 2018 before he fought Deontay Wilder. He took two tune-up fights because he knew Deontay Wilder was on the horizon at the end of 2018. That's exactly what Seton Hall did here. They said, all right, we're going to put two teams that are going to challenge us, but we're, we're going to knock the cobwebs off. We're going to figure out who we are. We're going to get two wins here, build up our confidence, and play Michigan State. Wilner, did you see it that way when the schedule was made? Oh, 100%. I, I saw it that way because you look at those two teams – you know, for Seton Hall, Wagner and Stony Brook, you know, they there were two teams that Seton Hall had their numbers, you know, years prior. And nobody's going to see either of those two teams coming into Walsh Gymnasium and pulling off an upset. And I think for everybody in Seton Hall land, that, that was the case was that these were just tune-up games, you know, like these were just games like you had mentioned, Michael, to knock the cobwebs off have some live action, you know, a different uniform in front of you and let's see how it works. And I think those tune-up games really helped out Seton Hall because that Stony Brook game outside of the injury that Miles Powell had was a very, very close game, which even if Miles Powell didn't play, shouldn't have been a close game. I mean, Stony Brook had a 33-31 lead at halftime. They were up by six at most in that first half. So to have that close game and to be able to get those other players in for Wagner, at least, because they blew Wagner out 105 to 71. It allowed those other players to start stepping up. It allowed those other players to get their confidence as well as you can run some offensive sets some defensive sets onto somebody else that doesn't know what you're running. Chris, I'll turn to you because I'm glad Wilner brought up the fact that the Pirates struggled against Stony Brook. They did. My question to you, Chris, do you think the Pirates needed to struggle against Stony Brook as sort of a wake-up call so that they could play as well as they did against Michigan State? I, th I think you can argue that. Yeah, that's a fair point. Because, well, you know what, Wagner and Stony Brook, kind of like a lot of smaller programs in the New York City area, you know, Iona, as we, we know, a lot of Iona guys come down to Seton Hall. Fairleigh Dickinson, LIU, Brooklyn, for example, NJIT. There are a lot of very good smaller programs in the area uh, that are very good at their own level. These are games, however, that, yeah, we, you know, we always said, and it's true, Wagner, Stony Brook, good programs, but we saw them on Earth St. Francis Brooklyn. There's another one, I believe. Uh, but we, we saw them pretty much at the beginning of the year every year. And the truth is, when you have a team that's as powerful as Seton Hall, no, they're not, you know, UCLA or something like that. But Seton Hall in maybe the best basketball conference in the country, the Big East, and a very dominant team over the previous five years, at least, and over the history of the, of the conference, those are games you expect to win by at least 15 or 20 points, probably. And, yeah, they, they struggled against Stony Brook, which – was I, Michael? I think I would agree with you. I think it was something that showed, you know, we're we're not privileged. We're not going to get by just on our talent. We we have to be intelligent. We have to actually, you know, give our one hundred percent all the way through the game. Uh, so yeah, I I would certainly agree with you. They they needed to struggle a bit in order to bounce back against a team like Michigan State. With, I mean, seriously, Michigan State 
Tom Izzo is on the level of, you know, he's close to the level of even Mike Krzyzewski, some of the greatest coaches of all time, some of the some of the best we've seen in recent years. And uh, he, look, he's won one national championship, but this guy is one of the greatest coaches ever. And I remember him walking in after the game to do the press conference. And I felt like that was not something you saw very often that the opposing coach would come into the press room to do the press conference after the game. And that was, I think, not, not just impressive to say something about the stature of Seton Hall's program, but I was, that, that was a career highlight for me. I got to see Tom Izzo, you know, 50 feet in front of us. That was, that was insane. And, and that really showed something that, that Seton Hall could, uh, could uh, really stand up to some of these teams. And they couldn't do that without the Stony Brook game. Tom Izzo is, I would say, a top 10 coach of all time based on what he's been able to do with one program and build up there. But we're, we're going to get more into Michigan State. We have time for that. Wilner, I, I want to talk about the Miles Powell injury because that's the main reason why we're even talking about those first two games because that changed the entire complexion of the five days or so leading up to the Michigan State game because no one knew if Miles Powell was going to be able to play. So when that happened, what was going through your mind after that injury? Well, it was very interesting to say the least, the coverage of that injury from when it happened in that way or in that Stony Brook game until the tip of the ball in the Mich- against Michigan State because – the injury was a regular basketball injury. No, Miles Powell went up for a layup, went down on somebody's foot, rolled his ankle. And those, depending on the severity, I mean, we saw that with, with Saquon Barkley with the Giants, you know, this past week where he just kind of came down and rolled his ankle and it, it looked bad. But the thing about those kind of injuries is like you could either severely injure yourself if it's a high ankle sprain and you might have to be out a couple of weeks or it's just something where, you take it some time, you rest it up, you get your compression wrap, you you stretch it out, and you could be back within a couple of days. And I remember after that injury, the day after or two days after, you know, there were reports that was like, oh, Miles Powell could miss a couple of games because of the injury because it, it was a little bit more of a higher grade of ankle sprain. And that news had came out and people were like, okay, he's definitely going to miss the Michigan state game. Is he going to come back from conference play? Is he going to come back against Rutgers? You know, what's the timeline for miles power? It never really seemed like he was going to come back against Michigan state until probably a couple of days later where then some news had started coming out. You know, the, the test results came back in favor of miles Powell. You know, he's healing better on schedule you know maybe there is a chance and again it was still very foggy because it was back and forth between is it a severe injury is it not a severe injury is he gonna play is he not gonna play and then you know Chris I know you you probably want to talk about it too but you know when you had that pregame interview with Bill Meyer you know he kind of kept it low-key too and I remember listening to that audio pregame where he was like oh I I don't want to talk about the injury let's focus on the game and that's kind of like what are we doing here so it was Seton Hall tried to do their best to keep a cover on Miles Powell's injury with due respect because Miles Powell is that kind of player and if you give Michigan State maybe a little inkling that he's going to be able to go 
that changes the way that they're going to focus the game. So if you give them kind of that uncertainty where it's like, you know, maybe he's not going to play, Michigan State probably prepares for a non-Miles Powell Seton Hall team, and then boom, here comes Miles Powell. And that's almost exactly what happened in this situation. You could jump in, Chris. Yeah, well, I, I think, yeah, Seton Hall probably did the right thing, playing their cards, playing their uh, cards close to the best, and oh, truth is, I mean, you, you you couldn't always get an interview. I couldn't always get an interview with them when I was doing play by play anyway. But it was, uh, yeah, they you did not see much of my. I'm trying to remember. I can't exactly remember if he had come out of the tunnel in the first one. I want to say he was out for warm-ups. I don't remember that for sure. If he was, he was limited. But yeah, I remember thinking, eh, he, he might not play in this game. I, I also thought that, you know, maybe this could be a positive for Seton Hall in that you know, Miles Powell, I, I think as a pure team, I think the teams of my freshman year, my sophomore year, or, or where they had, you know, Angel Delgado, Desi Rodriguez, Kadeen Carrington, that was, I think, a, a better all-around team and a better starting five. But Miles Powell was as good a player, as good a scorer as anyone, and kind of carried that team on his back at times. So I, I kind of felt that if Powell wasn't going to play, that could help Seton Hall in that Michigan State's going to have to defend everybody. Whereas if they play Powell, they're going to be right on top of it the entire time. And, and to an extent, that was true in this game. But yeah, I... I really did not know what was going, what was going to happen. I mean, when they said game time decision, they really meant game time decision. That's, that's the closest, I think, to tip off I've, I've ever seen in terms of, a, of an actual decision like that. I think they knew for a while. I think they knew for a couple of days. But they did not tell us a word. They did not give us an inkling of whether or not he would play until, until I think you probably heard his name called for, for starting lineups. So, I, I mean, kudos to Seton Hall. They played that. They played it very smartly. I'll answer something you said, Chris. I would say the 2017-2018 team, or even the year before, 2016-2017, after Isaiah Whitehead left, as a team, I would say they were better. But the difference is you had a gunner leading your team in Miles Powell that you didn't necessarily have in 2017 and 2018. Angel Delgado, in my opinion, maybe you guys disagree, was the best player on that Pirates roster. Miles Powell, the way he was able to change the game, it, it was a different team, which is why I don't think that the 2019-2020 team was as good as those two other teams, but they were different because Powell, again, in my opinion, was better than Delgado just because of his role. Wilner, how do you feel about that? I think I, I'm – Unsure because the reason why I'm like unsure about it is because you know they're two completely different players, and I think you get two completely different things out of Miles Powell and Angel Delgado, which is hard for me to compare the two. Um, I think, like you mentioned, as a whole, previous Pirates teams could be better because this one this year in the 2019-2020 season, we always called this the Miles Powell show. It was Miles Powell and everybody else. Whereas, you know, those previous years, you can look at a couple of other players and, and say, you know, you're going to get, you know, 10 points out of them. You're going to get 15 points out of them. You know, Angel Delgado is going to get you that double-double easily. And I think it, this season, it was kind of like, okay, you know you're getting probably 20 from Miles Powell, but are you going to get, you know, 
20 from Miles Kale? Are you going to get five from Miles Kale? Are you going to get, you know, a double-double from San Juan McHale's really? Or are you going to get, you know, limited efficiency and limited points? Are you going to get a good Quincy McKnight or are you not going to get a good Quincy McKnight where he's just going to be focusing on defense, not really that much on offense? And I think, you know, those were a lot of storylines in terms of directly comparing Miles Powell and Angelo Delgado. I, I don't like comparing bigs and guards just because I feel like those are two different things where, like, Miles Powell is going offensively is going to light you up. But I think Angel Delgado gave you a lot inside as well as defensively that, you know, Miles Powell really couldn't. But I think overall as a team, you know, other other Seton Hall teams in, in recent memories, I think as a whole was better. But, you know, as, as a player, nobody did it in college basketball like Miles Powell in that season. Yeah, Powell, I will tell you. Oh, go, go Chris. Well, no, you go, you go, Chris. Oh, thank you. Thank you, Michael. I'll, I'll tell you that. I think Miles Powell's last two years, just the confidence of his play in the last two years, and is what it goes underrated is underrated is his leadership ability. Because as soon as we got to Big East Media Day at the Garden in 2018, in the fall of 2018, I mean, I remember Miles Powell pretty much said to me uh, when we were when we were talking to him, pretty much said, you know, I know I'm the leader of this team. I know I've got to be the guy because all these guys, uh, Delgado, Rodriguez, Carrington, all these guys were out. And Miles Powell knew his role as soon as the, that, that core four of, of uh, Delgado, Rodriguez, Carrington, and Sonogo stepped out of the spotlight. He knew what he had to do, and he knew it. He had to, at, at a lot of times, carry the weight of the team on his shoulders. So, yeah, I, again, I think, I think it was a stronger team, a more defensive, a more, a more stronger team, more defense, uh, defensively and physically especially, in 16, 17, 17, 18, that whole stretch, uh, 15, 16, but I'm also just saying that because I got there in 2016. Uh, but it was a, one, your number one was, I think, so much more dominant uh, on the offensive end of the floor uh, with Miles Powell, for sure. And I think that's the whole reason why we're even talking about Powell because his injury, it, it sent shockwaves throughout South Orange. But Let's get to the game itself because both of you guys covered the game. Clearly both of you guys had to pay attention to the game in order to do your roles. Chris, we'll begin with you here. Just in terms of takeaways, right? You can add in the miles Powell injury, but based on your memory bank and, and what you recall from that game, what were your biggest takeaways? Well, you know, I had to look back at the score sheet just to make, just to make sure of everything I remembered, but Stuff that I did, one thing that I did remember already, but before I even had to look at that was that Quincy McKnight shut down Cassius Winston in the first half. He, I think, Cash, I'm trying to remember how many points he had. I want to say he had anywhere between like zero and four points in the first half. And, and McKnight was all over him. And Winston was, I think, one of maybe, maybe two players in double figures for Michigan State in that game. Uh, so, but the, the difference was Winston was so dominant in the second half. He finished with 21, and, and that was uh, remarkable. He, he was the best player for Michigan State in that game. I'm not going to say he was the best player in the game. I think Michigan State, as we mentioned before, I mean, it really goes into Michigan State relied more on the team concept in that game. But uh, Cassius Winston was the best player for Michigan State. Well, also, so, sorry, Chris. yeah, go ahead. No, I, I, I thought you were done. Keep going, keep going. Yeah, well, that's all right. Well, I, I thought that 
even though he only had three points, he only had two assists. I remember thinking at the time that Xavier Tillman might have actually been the best player throughout the entire game for Michigan State. He had 11 rebounds. That was more than twice as many as anyone else on the team. And that was the most of anyone in the game. Michigan State narrowly won the rebounding total, which was very important. Um, and I, I wasn't terribly surprised that the, the game was that close, but I, I, think it, I think I said it would have depended on whether Powell would have actually played. Um, Powell had, uh, I, I'm going to tell you, as soon as Powell got on the floor and actually got it on the floor after uh, for, for tip-off, I don't think you could tell that he was hurt. I don't think you could tell at all that he was hurt. Uh, that was, um, I mean, may, maybe it was a lot better that, than they were even telling us and they were just using it as a really good tactic, Seton Hall. That, that's what I thought of that game. Gamesmanship could have played a role. Wilner, you weren't there in attendance, but obviously at the studio, what was your perspective of how this game unfolded? No, like Chris, I had to you know, just double check to the game because of course, off of memory, I remember Miles Powell going off, you know, 37 points for him, very efficient 37 points as well, 12 for 27, 6 for 14 from behind the arc. No, you remember that storyline, and you remember that, that Seton Hall wasn't able to pull out the game as, of course, the final scorer is always um, in our heads, and the fact that Seton Hall lost that game is in our heads, and, and I think what I had to go back and watch was the reason why Seton Hall lost the game. And the biggest takeaway for me was that yes, Seton Hall could play with anybody because when you take the number three team in the nation down to the wire, that, that has to show that. But the other takeaway was that Seton Hall shot themselves in the foot a lot this game. And I remember after watching the highlights, bringing that up at halftime and bringing that up in post game, where it, it seemed like there was a lot of defensive lapses, one, that Seton Hall had, and two, there was a couple of bad turnovers that Seton Hall had. One of them, I think it was an inbounds pass where I, it might have been McKnight just threw it away, and it allowed a fast break opportunity for Michigan State, and there was another one where it's kind of similar to that, where it's an inbounds pass, and, and it was just you know, an offline pass where it was like, a, what are you doing here type of thing. And also at the end of the game, like Seton Hall couldn't hit the side of a barn after Miles Powell hit the crazy and one three-pointer to put Seton Hall up by five. Outside of that, Seton Hall couldn't hit a field goal over the last couple of minutes where Michigan State over the last couple of minutes were very efficient hitting their shots. There were six for the last eight field goals to end off the game. So it was a game that Seton Hall easily could have won. And this is even going into the box score because if you go to the box score, Malik Hall went seven for seven off the bench for 17 points and also had five rebounds to his name. And, and Michigan State just bested Seton Hall in almost every other category. You know, 19 points off of turnovers versus Seton Hall's 10. 13 second chance points versus Seton Hall's four. 14 fast break points versus Seton Hall's nine. And 29 bench point versus Seton Hall's 11. So it was a game that, yes, was close. Yes, was down to the wire. I genuinely didn't think it was going to go down. I didn't. I didn't think it was going to be a close game. I thought Michigan State was going to find a way to beat Seton Hall, just because again, Miles Powell's injury, and also I was unsure to know how much of Miles Powell we was going to get after him going off in the first half, and he decided to turn up even more in the second half. But again, it was a game that Seton Hall easily could have won, and it, it, it was a game that they should have won. 
but it was a lot of just mental mistakes that allowed Michigan State to come back and come back roaring and get that victory. So I think an overall takeaway was just that Seton Hall could play with anybody, but they still had a lot of work that they needed to do in that season. I'll say this. The, the main reason why the Pirates even had a chance to win that game and why they even led, maybe you guys disagree, it was because of Powell's performance. That, that's the way I saw it. I, I thought the way he was able to take over that game It made this team unique because the reason why I brought up teams from the past, like Chris talked about, I don't know if teams from the past would have been as competitive because they didn't necessarily have that one player who could take over a game and a half. It was more so a collective effort. With Miles Powell, he's going to carry you on his back and lead you to the promised land. That's what he did at Seton Hall, and this game was a prime example of that. So. Wilner, I'll ask you, and then Chris, you could jump in right after once Wilner's done. In terms of not only Powell's performance, but the moral aspect of it, did you think there was any sort of moral victory for the way the Pirates played with Powell's effort? Uh, I'm 50-50 on this. And, And the reason why is because you can't take a moral victory and be like, okay, we played close to a top team in the nation at home. Let's take the victory at that. But I think it's also difficult to take that moral victory because of what I said before and also what you also added on, Michael. The fact that it was mainly Miles Powell that allowed Seton Hall to be in this game. Outside of that, you know, Miles Scale had a great game. I give credit to him. You know, four for six shooting, three for four from behind the arc. But outside of those two, Sandro was solid four for 11 now, you know, Quincy McKnight two for six and, and it it just didn't work out from there. You go down to your bench. They weren't really giving you too many productive minutes. So I think if you want to just go off a basis of you played close to a, to a top five team in the nation, then yeah, you can take the moral victory like that. But again, I think, in order for you to get an efficient moral victory, I think there, there's times where you're just like, you know, we played, we did everything that we can do, but the team was just hitting shots and that's what kept it close. And, and there's nothing that we can really do about that. I think when you have a game like that, you can take a moral victory out of it where you're playing solid defense, but you're just elevating and hitting those shots. I think that this was a game where it was Seton Hall again kind of hurt themselves on a couple of things and if they were able to correct just those little mistakes that you go into practice every single day and you practice and and you you know that you're not supposed to do this in the game or you're supposed to do this in the game I think because of that it's harder to get a moral victory out of this game because again there was a lot of mistakes that Seton Hall just did on their own end that allowed this game to be a little bit more closer and toward in towards Michigan State's favor to allow them to come back at the end. I think I want to say I thought at the time that had Miles Powell, if Miles Powell was not going to play, Michigan State would probably win by eight or nine, maybe. And if he did play, Michigan State would probably win by probably about three. It might be a one-score game. And so they exceeded my expectations a little bit. Although I think um, Wilner is kind of indirectly actually saying that 
we thought there were, there was a lot more out of this program than the rest of the country thought, which has been very true for, it's been true for the last five, six years, that a lot of people in this area realize how powerful Seton Hall, how powerful a program Seton Hall really is. And some people don't really realize it in pencil, in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, first off, but in a lot of different places, they don't realize how good a program it is. And I think we, we actually realize that, but that being said, yeah, I, I think you can rule this a moral victory. And the thing is, I don't know if it's for my own self-interest or, you know, because, you know, you, you want to relive the glory days or something like that. But there is, because there's, if you ever watch a great, great show called Brockmire, there is a quote from, I think it's Amanda Pete's character, something like, nostalgia is the most addictive drug. And now I'm getting all, now I'm getting all philosophical, but you know what I mean. Anyway, the, this game, I, Seton Hall showed that, that they could play with are almost the very best in America. By, by playing so close in that game. Because obviously, Wilner said there were some mistakes, but those were mistakes that I think by the uh, de facto end of the season, they had, I think, done a much better job of correcting. Even though they, I, they lost, look, they lost the game at, at, uh, against Villanova, they lost the game at Creighton against, at the end. But that was, if not for the pandemic, that was a moral victory that could have led to much, much, much greater things for Seton Hall in March. Um, and that was, and, and it really showed that Powell was among, uh, among the best players in the country, if not maybe the best scorer in America. Uh, that was a, a very powerful statement game, despite the loss, a very powerful statement game for Seton Hall. Chris, you brought up nostalgia. And I'm going to allow Wilner to follow right after you. I'm going to ask you in a very point-blank manner. Was this the best game you've been a part of? I would, prob I would probably say it's probably the best game I've ever worked on. Yes, I would probably say so. And um, I, I would say to my current employer that there is a very, that uh, very closely, I would say the New Jersey 87s against the Philadelphia Little Flyers game one of the South Division semifinals last year was very good. But uh, but the, the truth, yeah, this is probably this was probably the best game I've ever worked on so far, and uh, hope, hopefully so far. And the same goes for I, I would I would hope for you guys. That was uh, there were so many storylines to that game, and that's what makes some of the great games of all time, where you, where you go from. And again, not not that it's nearly on this level, but uh, you know, Miracle on Ice, uh, you know, Super Bowls. 42 51 uh, those sporting events so much of that comes from the drama that comes off the field or off the court and so many different storylines from Powell being hurt to uh, unfortunately Winston's trauma in the past week to Michigan State being ranked so high uh, to be to it being the the fact that it was Michigan State ranked third in the country and it was the first game at the Prudential Center that year so th there were so many different storylines. I would absolutely say that is the best game on which I have ever worked. I, I wish I could say that for me as well, but I, I feel like, Chris, you have a different experience because you're actually at the arena. And I feel like when I think about 
some of the better games that I've been a part of. It was the fact that I was able to be in that arena. I mean, you guys had touched on it earlier. I don't think it was a complete sell, or it might have not been a complete sellout, but it was one of the highest um, attendance games in Seton Hall's history. Um, 14,051 fans at the Prudential Center, the third highest for a Pirates game at the Rock and the highest ever for a weeknight game. So you guys, you guys were able to experience that in the arena, whereas like I was in studio. And again, it was great to be answering those calls and it was great to talk to the fans after the game. But when I think back to some of my, my favorite games that I've been a part of, I mean, the first one that, that resonates with me is uh, Sandro's buzzer beater against Butler because that the Prudential Center was absolutely jumping on that one. On top of that, um, St. John's versus Seton Hall when Shavar hit the game winner. Like, th those two games, being at the Prudential Center for those, like, is a completely different feeling than being in studio versus, you know, this Michigan State game where I couldn't really feel the energy of the fans. Like, I could hear it in the broadcast. I could see it on the TV. But it, it's a completely different feeling when you're actually there. And I would say, Wilner, for you, that Butler game in February where Sandro hit the game winner, that – that might take the cake, maybe. Because, hey, I mean, the way that the game ended, too, like, Seton Hall had it in the past, like, last, like, minute and a half. And then Butler, three-pointer, three-pointer, three-pointer. And then the the the, the layup for, for Sandra Mamakelich really to, to go in. And, I mean, we did a pirate rerun on that, too. But it, it, that game was in, in crazy, the way that that one ended, man. So we're going to end this here. And I'm going to ask you both individual questions. So... Wilner, beginning with you, since you were a part of Hall Line, you were Hall Line 1, what was it like dealing with the callers after a game like that? Because I am sure the, the phone lines were blinging for almost two hours. I think, if I remember correctly, I think it actually did go to like either an hour and a half or two yeah. hours. Um, in terms of the calls, like there weren't really... I don't want to say there wasn't memorable calls, but a lot of the calls were, were positive because a lot of people understood, you know, this was early in the season, Miles Powell, you know, coming off of injury. Um, and, and this was a good team as well. So a lot of people were positive in terms of their calls. You know, a lot of things that I had to defend was the fact that towards the end of the game, Miles Powell had, I think like 10 seconds on the shot clock and try to shoot a straightaway three-pointer, which uh, didn't, didn't go in and allowed Michigan state to come back and, and, and score the basket. And a lot of people were trying to ridicule Powell's shot selection there and just overall shot selection. And I remembered because I also listened back to the audio as well. You know, a lot of points that I was talking about then was, you know, let's not just say that Powell's shot selection was the main reason that, Seton Hall lost because again there was the turnovers there were you know defensive laps there was a lot of other things during the game that you could talk about but when Powell has 37 on on 12 for 27 shooting six for 14 from behind the arc I'm not going to question that man's shot selection even late in the game because there was times where he didn't have any inch of separation to still hit a shot so like I, I remember having to go back and forth with a lot of callers and, and telling them like I understand your frustration with that shot. It could it could have could it have been a better selection? Yes, but I'm not going to say that that's the reason why they lost. 
So it was, it was a lot of back and forth on that. But overall, you know, a lot of people were positive in terms of just being excited for the season to continue on due to the fact that Seton Hall was able to play a close game against a top-ranked opponent and being able to show the national stage that, hey, Seton Hall's here. Keep your eyes out on South Orange, New Jersey. That whole line, it, it was memorable because it didn't end till almost 1 a.m. And the game ended around 11 p.m. So that one went very long. And, and I feel like you and Jose handled yourselves beautifully that whole time. Now, Chris, my individual question to you, and Wilner can jump in after, I'm sure. You won an award because of this play-by-play. You won the best audio sports play-by-play at last year's CBI Awards. For you, how special was that? It was incredibly special, and really, I would, uh, I, I really don't like talking about these things, but, uh, but I, a career, definitely, at least to this point, a career highlight for me, and I've said it when we, when, uh, when, when it was awarded, and I'll say it again, that this was, this was actually a group effort. That's, I think that's probably why you don't, you don't see my name on that award. And I'm not being, you know, I'm not, be, I'm not being jelly. Uh, you know, it, that's why you don't see the name, anyone's individual name on the award. You see, it says WSOU 89.5 FM, Seton Hall University. That was a group effort. And yeah, you know, okay, play-by-play. Yeah, I was the play-by-play guy for that day. And I was very proud of that call, but I, I'm not there if not for an outstanding color job by Dalton. You not uh, doing your uh, beat writing so well, Michael, and, and not not to mention uh, not just the beat writing, but remember, beat writers we have we still have them on air, right? I think, and so at the time uh, we did, at the time we did at least, and you did a great job, uh, Wilner and Jose uh, on Hall Line. I, I'm trying to remember who else was. I, I don't I don't remember who engineered or produced that game. If I'm being completely honest, because I, I can't, God knows, I can't remember that much. Uh, Mr. Maven, I, all of those people, all of those people were involved with that. And, uh, I, and it also says something that we won that with a loss. That's how good the, the quality was for all, for all of us, that we won, when, we won that award and Seton Hall lost that game. And it was in November. This was not an, an NCAA tournament game. For God's sake, there was, I think... I never found out who any of these people were, of course, but Wisconsin radio was nominated for that award for the Rose Bowl, the Rose Bowl. And we still won for that. So I am enormously grateful and proud of that award, not just for me, but for all of us and for the station and for Seton Hall that, again, proves this really is the best college radio station in the country. I apologize to everyone else, but it is the best college radio station in the country. That's Barna. And, and I remember because, of course, being the station manager at the time and, and kind of transitioning into the sports manager position, it, it's a, one of the responsibilities for us to ensure, you know, to figure out which games we're going to, you know, submit for CBI awards and, and all of that. And I remember talking to Dawn and like, Russo, like, I, I need you to understand the way that you do play ball play. Like, it is absolutely tremendous. Just the, your cadence, your, your, your variety on words, your energy level. You know, I, I strolled back to, to find 
the, the main call that I posted on social media that day when I found out you're a finalist because I'm just sitting there, you know, watching the YouTube, just like, you know, let's figure out what awards that we're, we're a finalist for. And, and seeing your name there, Chris, like it brought me so much joy and being able to, to make that video and, and post it on social media to know that you're a finalist and then seeing that you actually won first place. Like, I, I man, it, it's bringing me so much joy to just think, of, think about that again, because, you know, like you mentioned, Chris, it, it it's a regular season game. Like, yes, it's a, a top 15 ranked game, but normally you, you think some of the best play-by-plays -play come from, you know, a championship game or, 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 or a finalist game, playoff game. The fact, Russo, that, that you brought your best work out there for a November matchup between Seton Hall and Michigan State, like, it, it brings me so much joy to know that you got that hardware. Like, I, I, I know you want to give credit to everybody else, but the – specific award was best sports play-by-play -play, and you were the play-by-play -play man for that so well, once again well, congratulations thank you bud and you know i think we also it, it may have it may have inadvertently we didn't know what was going to happen but because of, because of the pandemic we didn't get the opportunity to do march madness games and i very well think we could have it's very possible we all could have gone down to atlanta for the final four i honestly think that is that is possible uh, so, I mean, we kind of, we didn't realize, we kind of got all that angst out immediately early on in the year. And that probably helped eliminate what would have been a lot of other great calls in, in March across the country. But, um, you know, it's, I, I'm also so grateful for that award because, because uh, for you guys, I remembered, I, I mean, you know, two months earlier, we, well, two months before the game, we were in Dallas for CBI and, you know, we lost to, uh, uh, not CBI, for, um, oh boy, uh, NAB, and uh, we lost uh, to Hofstra, and that was a, a fascinating evening, but uh, very, seriously, you could, you could cut that to get, that's uh, playing in my head, and it's hilarious, but um, that ended up, one of be, ended up being one of the, one of the funnest uh, nights of my life, and then uh, just watching, uh, you were our manager, and you, and it, that was your award that that we won the next year, and and uh, really went to all of us. I I was so proud of of everyone, so proud of absolutely everyone. Thank you, Ben. It it was great to be a part of that call, not only with you, Chris, but Wilner, you being a part of it. Heaven, who's our producer for this episode, he was an AP there. I still don't know who the engineer for that game was. That that's I, something so I. Who could it have been? Because Jose was hall line two, right? Yeah, and Jose was probably the best in terms of. I'm Jose and Wilmer are probably the best in terms of technical stuff. I'm gonna. Was it Ronnie Castaneda? It could have been Ronnie. You know what? Possible. That makes sense. You know what? If you look back in Facebook Messenger, we've got to have something from. Yeah, that's 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 where I found out. That's where I found out. That's why I. I it was Castaneda. Okay, was thank you, Heaven. Thank yeah, you, Heaven. Our producer and sports director, Heaven Hill, just confirmed it was Ronnie Castaneda. Yeah, we had a murderer's row of broadcasters for that game. And the fact that regardless of the, the role, just being on that broadcast in any capacity, whether it's behind the scenes or writing, whatever, it's a big honor. So I, I think I could speak for you guys with that. But that's going to wrap up this edition of Pirate Rewind from my co-host, Chris Russo, the award-winning Chris Russo, and last but certainly not least, the station manager at the time, then the sports director the following year, Wilner Lewis. I'm Michael Daly from our sports director slash producer for this episode, Heaven Hill, saying so long, take care, 
Tune in to all of our podcasts wherever you get your podcasts.